The following KOPN podcast is made possible by the generous donations of listeners like you. Please consider a donation to listener-supported community radio, KOPN. You can donate securely on our website at kopn.org. Hi, welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture and find food truth. And today I'm delighted to welcome my guest, Dr. Garrett Broad. He is a professor, a researcher, and activist. He is an assistant professor in the Department of Communication and Media Studies at Fordham University in New York City. His research, which intrigued me, investigates how storytelling and communication technology shape contemporary communities and movements for social justice. He is particularly interested in the role of local and global food systems as a force for neighborhood health and environmental sustainability. And the book that I have in front of me is titled More Than Just Food, Food Justice and Community Change. Welcome, Dr. Broad. Thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, I'm really curious about your background in media and communication and how and why you became interested in the food system. That's a really great question. A lot of my colleagues in uh, media studies and communication studies ask me that all the time as well, (laughs) sort of wondering, what does this guy who studies media and storytelling and communication have an interest in food for? And I think the best answer is to say that's why we're having the conversation right now, right? Everyone has a story to tell about food. And as someone who's really fundamentally interested in social justice, in social equity, in, in health and eliminating health disparities and trying to deal with problems of environmental sustainability or unsustainability, I found as someone who was interested in communication and media that the food system offered just a really valuable and powerful entry point into broader conversations and that the food system, because of its connection to our health and our environment. To me, it seemed like focusing on food as sort of a centering way of doing scholarship and activism was a great way to engage people in conversations and to motivate social movements and social action. So that's how the, the media and the storytelling meets the food and the food systems and food justice. Yeah, I think it's really important that we step back and think about some of the narratives that become true, perhaps because we've heard them repeated so often, and to look at food through this storytelling and communication lens, I think, is extremely critical. Now, there's a short little video that is attached to introducing your work, and I should let our listeners know that your book is really a scholarly sort of book that might be good, say, in a classroom, but the information that you present on the web video is really interesting in that we've got these two parallel food systems going on. We've got one of abundance of healthy food, and then we've got another one that has typically been termed a food desert, although I do have friends that really hate that term, so I don't like to use it per se, but I think we can all relate to these environments, both urban and rural, where there's really nothing good to eat. Perhaps there is food It's highly processed, lots of fast food restaurants perhaps, but none of the kind of food that I certainly recommend as a dietitian that people eat to prevent chronic disease. So tell me a little bit about these two food systems and the stories that go along with them. 
Yeah, and I should note, I agree, I have issues with the food desert term and sort of use it because it's a story we've become familiar with, but I use it as a way to, to critique it as well. But yeah, I mean, when we think about the food system, there are clearly two different universes that I think most of us in the developed world in particular live in. You know, one is the story, as I say, of abundance of easy access to fresh and affordable healthy foods. I think it's important not to underestimate what a remarkable break it is from human history, just how much food we have, and, and, and high-quality food at that, even though there are problems with the industrialization and problems with our grocery stores and the, the grocery stores that make up our standard American diet, our sad diet, right? But for many of us, the access we have to good food is unparalleled in human history. But alongside that story of abundance, of easy access, there's this parallel story of injustice, of food deserts, right? Uh, a lot of folks don't like that term. They prefer food swamps. I think that's slightly better because it's not that there's no food at all, but it's that it's filled with foods that are not nourishing, that come from a system that's fundamentally flawed from production through distribution to the point of consumption. And so for many of us who don't live in that other world, myself included, it's easy for us to have this story in our heads that, hey, things work really well. And that if anybody doesn't eat healthy food, it's because they are making a bad choice. They're making a bad decision. But if you live in a different world, if you live in a world where food swamps are a reality, then you'll see that there are a lot of other stories that can be told about what are the barriers to healthy eating? What are the barriers in terms of access, in terms of time, in terms of skills and money and all those sorts of things? And so when we dig deeper, and this was a real education for me doing this research, getting out of my comfort zone, getting out of that world of abundance and listening to the stories of everyday people living in low-income communities and communities of color that have a history of disinvestment that have a history of a lack of access, not just to healthy food, but to a variety of vital services that can contribute or, in this case, take away from their possibilities for living full and healthy lives. And a lot of my research is in the urban area, but I think there are also lots of similar examples we can see in rural communities across the country that face similar challenges, again, not just in the food system, but how that injustice in food is connected to other injustices and inequities across the rural landscape of America. All right. Well, why don't you take us to one of those communities? You spent some time in South Los Angeles. Take us there. I think when most of us hear about South L.A. or South Central L.A., I don't know if, if a lot of your listeners are hip-hop fans, but, you know, we think about, like, Dr. Dre and Straight Outta Compton and Boys in the Hood. It's a neighborhood of neighborhoods, really, that has long been stigmatized, long known for riots, for gang violence, for failing public institutions. And, and all of those things are, to a certain extent, true and, and part of reality in a place like South L.A. But I was a, a graduate student at the University of Southern California, which is right around South L.A. It's right above South L.A., although in many ways a sort of world away. And it was there that I had an opportunity to get to know folks who were doing really productive and generative work and, and had a chance to push back against the stories that I had long been told about the type of people who lived in a place like this and about the type of activities that folks were engaged in and was really humbled to see the, 
steadfast resilience of many folks doing activism on all sorts of issues, but in particular on food issues, on urban agriculture, on local market development, on a variety of initiatives around nutrition education and social justice through food. So, you know, we already mentioned this food desert term. South LA is one of the prototypical food deserts that we hear about. So it's an urban area where if you compare it to a more wealthy and higher percentage of white residents in, say, West Los Angeles, across all the food indicators, access and price and quality and health outcomes related to food, it does really poorly. And so, as I started doing research and collaborating with activists in this area, it was around the time where the food desert language was being used a lot. And so people were saying, hey, we've got a neighborhood like South L.A., it's a food desert. What's the solution? Well, we need to build a grocery store. And what we've seen in the last few years is we started to do research on the impacts of bringing a new farmer's market or bringing a new grocery store into communities like South L.A., we see that, hey, it actually doesn't magically make everything better. Just because we increase in name food access doesn't mean that everybody all of a sudden is happy and healthy and their communities are thriving and health disparities disappear. And so I think, again, critiquing this food desert term, the strategies that have developed around the solving the problem of food desert, I think, have been inadequate because the problem is not really just food deserts. The problem is systemic and long-term inequity and lack of economic opportunity. Food deserts are a symptom. And so I think we need to see strategies that confront not just access issues, but a variety of issues related to job training, related to knowledge creation, related to economic opportunity. And so the groups that I work with in South Los Angeles and in other cities across the country have tried to take a more systemic approach to dealing with food injustice, to dealing with food deserts. So I write about an organization called Community Services Unlimited, which is a, a very long history in South Los Angeles, was actually founded in the mid-1970s as uh, the nonprofit arm of the Southern California chapter of the Black Panther Party. And I, I'd be happy to talk more about that connection in a moment. But a group like CSU that does a variety of initiatives around urban agriculture, school gardens, nutrition education, job training for young people, local market development. You know, they're in the process of buying a, a building that's going to be the first organic supermarket in South Los Angeles, employed with young people from the neighborhood. And so it's this kind of systemic approach where they're using food, again, as a conversation starter, as a community development strategy, recognizing that it can be part of a process to change the stories that are told about a place like South L.A. and the stories that young people in these communities tell about their opportunities and, and their skills and their ability, and from there to change the nutritional and environmental health of the neighborhood. Mm -hmm. You write about that organization, and you also in that same chapter say that media producers have a potentially powerful role to play and that they can help community-based groups more effectively capture and spread their messages of resistance and perseverance to local, national, and global audiences. Do you see that happening in Los Angeles? Some folks might be familiar with a guy named Ron Finley, who I also write about in the book. Uh, yes. He had a TED Talk that went viral, The Gorilla Gardener of South LA. I think Ron offers a really interesting example of a voice from the grassroots. I mean, Ron is a, a longtime native of uh, South Los Angeles who's got a real knack for storytelling, for branding. 
I won't say some of the things that he says on his TED Talk. I think we might get censored here. But he's got certain taglines, plant some things. If kids grow kale, kids eat kale. All these sort of things that are highly brandable, that spread in media, that go viral. So I think Ron, who was also featured in a recent documentary called Can You Dig This?, which was produced by the musician and, and producer uh, John Legend. We're starting to see more and more stories that are, are starting to be told of not just about folks in neighborhoods like South L.A., but in collaboration with folks in neighborhoods like South L.A. And, and this is one of the real takeaways from my book, my research, and kind of the message I'd love to send to your listeners is, you know, just because we see a really well-produced story about a school garden, for instance, in a low-income community. Oftentimes, in my experience, the groups that are best at telling that story through really like savvy media, you know, and, and getting on daytime television shows and going viral on the internet, oftentimes the groups that are best equipped to tell that really well-produced story are not the ones that have really good grassroots participation or long-term commitment to making change happen in the local neighborhood. Oftentimes, the groups that have that really great grassroots strategy for getting local people involved and having local people do the work and build community, oftentimes, they don't pay much attention at all to sort of the media aspect. And when they don't tell the story of their neighborhood, it's easy for someone from the outside who doesn't really understand what they're up to or what their vision is to tell that story for them. So this is really something that I think is important about this work and something that I know that many of my grassroots collaborators appreciate about the conversations we had to try to point out there's a lot, the whole food movement and urban gardens in low-income neighborhoods, it's gotten kind of trendy in certain ways. And it's important that we highlight the those groups that are really doing that kind of work from the bottom up, but also help those kinds of groups tell their story to audiences outside of the local neighborhood to help them build capacity for the long term. Yeah, absolutely. Dr. Broad, let me just take one moment to remind our listeners that if you're just joining us, you are tuned into Food Sleuth Radio, where we are joined by Dr. Garrett Broad. He is an assistant professor in the Department of Communication and Media Studies at Fordham University in New York City. His research investigates how storytelling and communication technology shape contemporary communities and movements for social justice. And we are talking about his book titled More Than Just Food, Food Justice and Community Change. I want to get back to something that Mr. Finley said, which was, see, people think it's all about food, but it ain't about food. It's about keeping these kids out of prison. I don't go out there necessarily all the time and spit game like that. And you say the question then is whether Finley will push forth this more systemic narrative in the months and years to come. Will he also work to construct a set of community-based networks that will leverage his spreadable media success into enduring social justice action? And you also talk about the role of digital media in that the success of the Roy Finley Project shows that digital media offers an opportunity for voices to emerge from the ground up, but also that publicity comes with its own set of challenges and the danger of co-optation. Talk to me a little bit about the role that digital media plays and how it has brought celebrity status to people like Mr. Finley and how we can use it in the food movement. We should always be mindful of what are the media that matter at any given moment in terms of shaping 
how people think about the problems in the world, the stories we tell about what the problems are and what the solutions might be. And certainly in 2016, understanding how media operates as part of a digital landscape, how things like YouTube and Facebook and Twitter and, you know, now all the kids are on Snapchat, right? How do we use these different tools to tell these stories in ways that make sense for those particular mediums? You know, um, we're a long way from the telegraph. We're a long way from the newspaper. In this age, if things aren't quick and soundbiteable and fun and have a pop to it, they often don't spread. They often don't get a lot of attention. I think what Ron Finley demonstrates is how you can build this message through food and use media and go viral in that way. And, and he has become a celebrity over the last couple years, something that he didn't really expect. Now, I think what's interesting about Ron is, and it's been a little bit since I've been in touch with him, but at the time I wrote the book, he was sort of at the early stages of trying to develop some more local organizing, build some you know, local institutions, uh, build a big garden and, and have a market in South Los Angeles. And I know that he's faced some challenges in terms of just the day-to-day staffing of doing the organizing, of the administrative work. And just because somebody goes viral with a really good story about food justice doesn't necessarily mean that that skill set's going to directly come over and help them build a long-term community development strategy. Now, I'm not saying that Ron won't have that opportunity or doesn't have those skills, but I think it's a real challenge. And conversely, as I mentioned, I think a lot of the groups that do that on the ground work really well are the ones that struggle to understand the importance of media, understand how they can use digital media. And so, you know, one of the things that that I I think there's an opportunity for in in a group like Community Services Unlimited that I write about in the time since a lot of my research is done is they have been seeking out more partnerships with brand and marketing experts, for instance, who can help them cultivate and develop their branding strategies, which they are increasingly recognizing are important, you know, getting active on Instagram, getting active on Facebook. But at the same time as they're starting to focus on on the media aspect, that doesn't mean that they can spend any less time on the grassroots work. And so finding that balance, I think, looking forward is a real challenge for food justice groups who need that sort of bottom-up capacity building, but also recognize that there's real benefits and risks in terms of of how they get engaged in doing the media storytelling. Yeah. I know that we just have a limited amount of time, and so, and of course I want to touch on so many things with you, but I did want to go back to the Black Panther Party. Yep. I had no idea that Mm -hmm. the Black Panther Party had a food justice story to tell. Sure. And so please share that with our listeners. It's so fascinating, and you wrote about it in the... February article in the Huffington Post politics, but please share with us how the Black Panther Party became involved in food justice work. Yeah, and I didn't know about this work either, right? I had been doing food movement work, food activism for several years, and it wasn't until I started working with some of these food justice groups that take a more race-conscious approach to the work that they do than many other groups in the food movement, that these are people of color-led organizations in African-American communities, Latino communities. And what I found in working with them and with this group, Community Services Unlimited in particular, was that the Black Panther Party, you know, in addition to what I think many folks think of when they think of the Black Panther Party, for me, I would think of large African-American men with guns and black berets and black leather jackets and sort of looking ominous. 
And sort of the story that I was always told growing up as a middle-class suburban white kid was that the Black Panthers, yeah, they were responding to some real problems and challenges in society, but they went about it the wrong way, right? Their militant approach was the wrong way, whereas Martin Luther King was doing it the right way. What I didn't know was that through the life of the Black Panther Party, they actually developed an entire strategy of what they called survival programs. These were community-based programs in chapters in cities across the United States that were developed and run by community members, by members of the Black Panther Party, to try to meet the needs of a number of African-American communities and other communities of color that were struggling on some basic necessities of life. So they had programs like free health clinics. They had a safe escort for senior programs. And their largest and most notable program was about food. Several major food programs, the, the most well-known, even if not well-known to many of us, was something called the Free Breakfast for Children program. Now, this is in the late 1960s, before the National School Lunch Program, before the development to the extent that we know it of, of many of the food stamp programs. And the Black Panther Party chapters were distributing free breakfast and lunch in many places to school children all across the country. And in one school year alone, 68-69, they fed over 20,000 school children. And that's really fascinating for someone who I, I had been involved in food activism for a long time, but I didn't know this story at all. And I think it's because for those of us who don't grow up in these communities where we see food access problems, food injustice, you know, food deserts. It's not a story that we've been told. It's not a story we've learned. But what I saw in doing this work was it was a story that really resonated with young people in these neighborhoods. Hey, here is a movement that developed out of neighborhoods like this, run by people who look like me, African-American, Latino young people, and saying, hey, why isn't this a story that we are being taught? Why do we only hear the bad things about the Black Panther Party? And, and, and there were bad things about the strategy of the Black Panther Party. But but, you know, I think when we wonder all the time, you know, how do we get folks in low-income neighborhoods, neighborhoods of color to eat better food? How do we get food to them? I think it would make sense for us to look at what is really one of the largest and most impressive food access initiatives in the history of the country that was developed from the grassroots and was very much developed not just as a nourishing strategy. I mean, a lot of it was just about getting basic nutrition to people who needed it. But throughout the life of the party, when they were doing food initiatives like this, it was also an organizing strategy. Food was something that they could bring people together to start to have conversations about racism, about inequality, and about organizing for social change and social justice in these communities. And so for me, it's not knowing that story was really telling to me. And I think telling that story a little bit more within the broader food movement would really be beneficial to help us understand the different kinds of histories that folks have and different kinds of strategies around food that have been developed in many of these food desert communities going back several decades. Well, Dr. Brock, how was that feeding program funded? So that's a really great question, and I think here's where sometimes I butt heads with some of my more, even more radical colleagues in academia and activism who often lift up this story of the Black Panther Party as, look, here is this community-led initiative, didn't need any help from anybody, and this is a message for how we can do things today. We don't need government support. We don't need foundation support. We don't need corporate support. We can do it all from the inside. And while I do really believe firmly that any successful movement moving forward for food justice needs to be led and developed and spearheaded by folks from these neighborhoods that experience injustice, 
the reality is even the example of the Black Panther parties, the money was coming from somewhere. Right. Um, and so in the case of the Black Panthers, much of it came from wealthy white donors, philanthropists, actors. They would have fundraisers at, there's a famous photo of Leonard Bernstein, for instance, the famous uh, composer, West Side Story, with his wife and a Black Panther leader, sort of an odd couple. Yeah. And this was at a fundraiser. Folks like Elliot Gould, Elizabeth Taylor. I mean, these were folks who were involved in helping to fund some of these programs. They also built partnerships with entrepreneurs within the black community. And so there was certainly money that needed to be brought into this. And, and I think one of the reasons, ultimately, one of several reasons that the Black Panther Party ultimately disbanded was they actually didn't think enough about how to make a sustainable funding model for their programs. And I think it's a lesson that groups today can learn from that, you know, even if you're opposed to certain aspects of capitalism or, or the way our markets work, you need to be engaged with capitalism. You need to be engaged with those markets to try to build economic development in your community and to develop strategies that are sustainable from a financial perspective. And just one last point on the Panther Party. Throughout the life of the party, there was major government efforts to deconstruct the Black Panthers. Jagger Hoover's FBI created something called Cointelpro, which had as its main mission to infiltrate and to start all sorts of arguments between a bunch of different African-American radical organizations or other political, radical political organizations. But you know what J. Edgar Hoover thought was the most dangerous thing the Black Panther Party did? What? Not their guns, not their policing of the police. It was the food programs that they thought were the most dangerous. And there wow. are quotes from J. Edgar Hoover saying this because he felt that that would build up too much community support for their efforts. And that was where the government, who at that time was really opposed to what the Black Panthers were doing, that, he thought, was the most dangerous aspect of this work. Wow. Well, if we ever thought that our small community food movements were anything less than powerful, you give us great reason to rethink that. I want to just let our listeners know that more than just food, food, justice, and community change – gives us many examples of community food programs that have made a difference and the importance that you bring out, Dr. Broad, of telling the food story, but our need to change the way that story is told. With just a few seconds left, do you want to leave us with a nugget or two on how you'd like to change the way the stories are told? I think it all starts with we need to make sure that those folks who are experiencing challenges in the food system need to be not considered problems to be solved by outsiders, but our partners and leaders in the development of sustainable and just solutions. That's number one. And I think there's still many programs that assume that there's no knowledge and there's no real skills about food or about community development in these low-income communities, historically marginalized communities. And so I just would really encourage anybody who's passionate about these food issues to make sure that in that passion, we take a step back sometimes and listen. And, and this is something I've had to push myself to do because I've got a PhD. I want to think I've got all the answers. And I think I do have things to offer and skills to offer in partnership, though, not in control. And so there are a number of really valuable initiatives happening in cities and towns across the country. And I just encourage your listeners and, and anybody else interested in these issues to take the time to get to know who's running these organizations, whose interests are really being put forth within these organizations. Do they reflect the needs and the desires and the skills and the abilities of community members themselves? And I think if we do that, then we've got a great chance 
to make food justice a reality across the country. Well, I want to thank you so much for the information that you've shared with us today. In closing, I want to thank our listeners for joining us and remind everyone that Food Sleuth Radio is produced by Dan Hemmelgarn at KOPN Studios in beautiful downtown Columbia, Missouri. Again, we've been speaking with Dr. Garrett Broad, author of More Than Just Food, Food Justice and Community Change. He is an assistant professor in the Department of Communication and Media Studies at Fordham University in New York City. Thank you again for being my guest, Dr. Broad. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. Thank you.